Well, our text this morning is a heavy one. And as I was studying it this week, I was reminded of an episode that I experienced when we were researching the history of Trinity Bible Church. Uh, we were preparing for the 50-year anniversary a few years ago and uh, started looking through the records and discovered that we'd had a number of really well-known preachers preaching at Trinity Bible Church in the past. Uh, we, we found out that we had J. Vernon McGee preach here at one point, and at another point we had Ray Ortland Sr., who's the, the father of Ray Ortland Jr. Uh, but another name caught my attention, a name Roy Clemens, that many of you probably are not really familiar with. But for me, it really stuck out to me because he was a guy who had mentored uh, the pastor who mentored me and a number of other spiritual heroes of mine. Uh, but the, the, the sight of his name actually wasn't a, a sight that caused me to get excited because he had been, been here, but it reminded me of a moment when I had been an intern a, a decade before. Uh, it was then that my then pastor told me about how this man who had mentored him had uh, been thought to be uh, probably the next John Stott. He was super gifted in, in both writing and preaching. People were following his career. He was raising up young men for ministry. And in the middle of it, he decided that he was going to leave his wife and family and church to live a life of homosexuality. And I remember when I heard that story that it really, it really stuck out to me. I thought, well, surely if you were listening to his preaching and if you had been being discipled by him, there would have been some kind of tell about the nature of where his life had taken a wrong turn. So I had a project where I was supposed to listen to sermons and I picked one of his sermons just as sort of an experiment. And as I began to listen, I got about halfway through the sermon and I began just to weep a little bit. And the reason that I began to weep was because I had such confidence that as I listened that I would be able to hear a message that showed that this was not a man who loved Jesus. And yet, as I listened to it, I began to think to myself a couple of things. One was, I will never be able to preach like this man. He preached with power and clarity. And the next thought that I had was, if this man has these gifts and yet he is not a child of God, then, then what does this mean for uh, those who are of faith and for his faith? Was he really a believer? And I began to wrestle through these things. Well, as I, I, I prayed through it and I sought counsel through it, what I actually discovered was in that moment, I was a, a young Christian who had not seen great teachers and heroes of the faith fall. But as I continued to study the scriptures, what I discovered was I was not the first person to have this experience, to have someone that I loved who I thought it was sure they were going to make it to the end, not make it to the end, even those who were gifted and seemed very gifted. Well, that reminded me of a number of scriptures from Jesus in Matthew 17 who warned that this would happen. It was there that Jesus said, uh, there are going to be those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but they are inwardly ravenous wolves. And, and then Paul, he, he reminded us as he was at Ephesus that he was handing over his authority to these pastors and he warned, fierce wolves, they're going to arise from your own selves, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them if possible. Now we're jumping back into our Remember This series 
In 2 Peter 1, 3, 1 to 3, where Peter adds his warning about false teachers that would come. Now, if you're just joining us, let me catch you up to speed as far as what's been going on in 2 Peter so far. Uh, Peter has told us that he anticipates his death soon. So he writes to these Christians in this generation that he was speaking to, but also for future generations that would come, a warning of false teachers who would at least teach two things. One is that Jesus isn't coming back. And second, which is related to it, that it therefore does not matter how you live. Now Jude writes against an outsider that had infiltrated the church with bad teaching, but the scary reality that Peter describes is that false teachers would spring up from within them. Now members of the church would begin to deny the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Now Peter has begun by arguing that Christians have been united by faith to the morally excellent Christ in verses three to five. And then he talks about how that Christ is morally, uh, progressively sanctifying them or transforming them so that they look more and more like Jesus morally. And then in verses 16 to 19, just before this verse, Peter argued that the Old Testament prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit to declare that God's Messiah, he would return to judge the nations, a really important impetus for living a godly life. Well, that's truth from the God of truth. The the truth that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming to judge the living and the dead. Are, Are you with me? That is truth from the prophets and from the apostles. That's truth with a capital T. That's the kind of truth that edits any other truth that you hear taught. One day, we will all give an account before God for our lives. He is the eternal, transcendent creator of the universe, who when he speaks with the same voice that he spoke all of creation, seen and unseen, into existence, that voice carries unparalleled and unrivaled authority. That's what Peter wants us to know. But as he speaks, we find that this God of truth speaks truth. And yet, as we see this morning, rivals will arise in the church claiming to follow Jesus, the true Jesus, and yet denying God's truth and claiming to teach a more authoritative version of truth, maybe an updated, revised truth that meets a modern era. And it results in a self-abandoned sexual excess that displays that they stand condemned and await sudden destruction. See, Peter's been building a theological bridge that is preparing us for his address to these specific false teachers. And he identifies them here for the first time in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Now, if you're taking notes, here's our big idea. You can write this down. It's this, beware of false teachers motivated by the cares of the world instead of the return of Christ. Beware of false teachers motivated by the cares of the world instead of the return of Christ. Now you'll notice here first, in the first part of verse 1, we're told that false teachers will come like false prophets of old. 
false teachers that, that look like the false prophets of old. They're coming. Now, you'll, you'll notice, Peter says God's people have always needed to discern the good news from competing fake news. We, we have always needed, God's people, a discernment to be able to understand what is true and what is not, what is good and what is best. Notice what he says here in chapter 2, verse 1, though. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, false and true prophets coexisted in the past. We, we see that here. We see that in the Old Testament. In fact, Old Testament believers often heard from false prophets, even as they were hearing from the true prophets carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are too many examples of this to cite, but just consider Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. Did you hear that? The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Now he goes on to remind them that he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt to a new way of life. And yet here we are. God's prophet is warning of false prophets already as soon as he has redeemed them out of Egypt. I mean, they've barely gotten out of Egypt and they already have to be reminded, don't listen to those who claim that I have said false things or that are coming with a word that isn't in accordance with my word. And God tests his people. He tests their love for him and whether or not they will listen to false prophets who are to be put to death. Now just imagine a prophet coming in the context of Deuteronomy and saying something of the effect of, hey guys, you know, we just heard what God said. Uh, here's my thought. God just wants you to be happy. So you do you. And we're good. Who's first? Well, you might say that sounds ridiculous. I mean, God has just spoken. They've seen the miracles. They saw what he did to the Pharaoh, right? And yet, we know that again and again, this was replayed in the history of Israel. They quickly forgot the God who delivered them. They quickly forgot his authority and his power, his love for them. His goodness to them. You know, some people image Jesus of the New Testament as being altogether different from the God of the Old Testament. It's almost like Jesus heard that the God of the Old Testament was really getting some bad PR. So he came along to say, hey, let me, let me tell you, like, God's not really that bad. I'm the guy who's going to tell you about grace. You forgot about grace. Grace is a big deal. Don't, don't think about judgment. Don't look at judgment. Just look at grace. But notice how Peter, 
the apostle who walked and talked with Jesus face to face, puts false teachers of his day in a similar category of the prophets of old, saying, just as there will be teachers, false teachers among you. See, false teachers do and will exist. That's what Peter wants us to see. See, Peter's shifting here to the future tense, and I, I think this is interesting, and, and it is a little difficult to understand why is Peter speaking of this as a future reality? Does it mean that this isn't something that's happening in the moment that he's writing this? Well, some take it to mean that he's not speaking to a contemporary situation, but something that is coming entirely in the future. I, I think there's a, a good argument for that. But later in chapter 2, notice he shifts the present tense again. So I think that Tom Schreiner is likely right when he says this future tense is really Peter alluding to the prophecies that were uttered in the early church, like Deuteronomy 13 that we just read, or Matthew 24, 11, where Jesus himself says, many prophets will arise and lead many astray. See, I take Peter's shift from false prophets to false teachers here to speak to his specific situation of false teachers who may have even denied that anyone has ever been carried along by the Holy Spirit to deliver divinely authoritative truth. They are editing God's word. They're denying the truth of Scripture. In fact, Richard Bauckham, he was looking at this comparison between false prophets and false teachers, and he's famously laid out a, a few characteristics of a false prophet that are in play for the false teachers here. He says, false prophets, they, they lack divine authority. They promise the people peace when God threatens judgment, and they will certainly be judged by God. And that third one we find is actually escalated, not just from physical death, but the eschatological death in our text this morning. See, Peter's false teachers, they fit the autopsy of the false prophets of the past. And Peter says, local churches, we need to be aware of false teachers rising up from within like wolves masquerading as sheep. Now, let me just be super clear about a few things up front, okay? So just come in close. As I am preaching this this morning, I today, as of today, don't know of any wolves amongst us, okay? We, we good? Like, I don't know if, I'm not thinking about anybody in our congregation. I think we have a body of delightful Christians who are growing in Christ together. Uh, I am excited to see what God's doing in our lives. Second, I'm not so sure every wolf and sheep in sheep's clothing knows that he is a wolf. I don't know that they always or ever even come to the reality that, oh, I'm actually more like a wolf than a sheep. Motives are complex. I know because I know my own heart. I, I often am sort of like spending time meditating on like, why did I do this? And I feel like there are these competing desires. And I'm sure that some of them are godly and some of them are not. And I don't know that we always are aware of what's driving us. See, the cares of the world, like money and sex, can gradually and imperceptibly hijack one's beliefs and reveal whether or not they evidence a Holy Spirit-empowered love for God and others. Sometimes that takes time. And a, and a membership in a local church is a great instrument to help somebody who thought they were a Christian who were not discover that they're a Christian. Third, God's people have always needed to discern the good news of the God who delivers from competing fake newses. That, that's always been something that Christians and God's people have needed to do. 
you need to be discerning. You need to grow in your discernment, your ability to, de- to decide and determine between right and wrong. And catch this. If you get really good at understanding what is right and wrong according to the scriptures, that's when life begins because then you need to start discerning between what is good and best. D- does that make sense? Like that's where it really gets hard. How can I make the best decision to the glory of God? Like hopefully you're not sitting at home at nights and thinking to yourself, I don't know whether or not I should make an idol. The answer is no. Fourth, Trinity Bible Church. I I, I hope that we understand that it's so important that we as a church are discerning what is right and wrong. In fact, uh, that's one thing that pastors are a gift of the church for. It's that we help vet things that are not healthy. So if we have a book that's taught at Trinity Bible Church, we as pastors ask you to let us read it. If it's taught as Trinity Bible Church, at home, you read what you want. I, I would prefer good things. But we like to vet things to make sure that if we're teaching it, if we're bringing stuff in, that it's for a, a healthy reason, that it's a good resource, that it's not going to lead someone astray. This is also why... We have teachers of our junior high students to adults fill out a leadership application. It's because we believe James 3.1 is really clear. Teachers are held to a higher level of accountability. And so we want to help teachers make sure they're where they need to be to be able to teach others. It's good for you and your hearers to do this. But fourth, I I would like for us as a church, application-wise, to delight in truth more than we delight in exposing wrongs. That does not mean that we are not bold for the truth, but it means that our delight is not in exposing the errors of others, but in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what God has revealed to us. That should be the thing that we delight in. It is a powerful thing for non-Christians and younger immature Christians to see mature Christians delighting in the glories of Christ. We need to be a church that loves to glory in what has been revealed to us about the nature of Jesus. There is none like him. And all I mean by this is that we should celebrate the glorious truths of Scripture and yet at the same time be gentle and patient with others as they learn. You know, I long for us to be a church where those who are young in the faith can come and drink without fear of drowning and those mature in the faith can dive in without fear of hitting the bottom. We want to hit that balance. And fifth, let's not forget here, very important transition, that the false teachers here are not teaching low-grade error. Okay, Second Peter's not talking about low-grade, I, I missed an exegetical point. They're teaching what he calls destructive heresies. Do you see that? Uh, look in this verse, as you continue down in verse 1, these false teachers teach destructive heresies. Now, he describes them, these people, as those who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, the translators seem to have added secretly to the describing of bringing in of destructive heresies to to sort of clarify the bad intentions of those smuggling in this false teaching. That's why... They use the word heresy here. That's what it means, bad teaching. Now, churches that love truth can sometimes become a little bit like heresy hunters. You know what I'm talking about? 
Uh, heresy hunters, the, the folks that created a cancel culture before cancel culture was cool, like that began in the church. People like, oh, bad theology, we're done with you, right? But part of Christian maturity means that we need to recognize that not all doctrinal errors carry the same weight. Now, I'm saying this carefully. That does not mean that all doctrine isn't important. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that not all doctrine carries the same weight. Not all doctrines are as clear as other doctrines. You know, sometimes I, as I think about my history of getting excited about theology, sometimes I find that my emotions get the best of me. And I often think about my past when I was a younger Christian. Um, sometimes I'm thinking about like a few months ago. But where I got too hot too quick about a theological topic, and people thought that I was talking about heresy when I was really just excited about a doctrine and I didn't communicate like what the difference was about the kind of heat I was bringing. Does that make sense? And that makes me sad. I want to be gentle with people who I differ with and clear. All truth matters, but not all truth is damnable heresy. I love Al Mohler's article, Theological Triage. That's something you should write down and look up if you haven't read it before. It's Al Mohler's article, Theological Triage. I think it's a great exercise in teaching Christians discernment about how to deal with theological issues. All of our elders have been through that together. Future elders go through that before they become elders. And he he uses this illustration of hospital triage units where they they basically evaluate incoming patients and and how sick they are to determine who needs help first. And they use usually three uh, levels as, as far as I understand. Uh, I'm going to use them theologically here is, is Christ, church, and conscience. Those are the three categories that I, I use to remember the kinds of issues that we face as we're talking about theology. You know, issues of Christ would be issues like justification by faith alone. And those are beliefs that determine whether you truly believe or not. But they can be, uh, they are uh, doctrines that uh, mean that you, you might not truly be a believer if you don't affirm those things. There's some things where people of faith that you must believe to be part of the church. But not all issues are that way. There's a second category, issues of the church. And these are issues between believers on uh, issues like whether or not you baptize believers and their children or believers, professing believers. Now, you you can disagree on this and not question whether or not somebody loves Christ, but decide in the end it might be easier for us to be in different churches to be fruitful for the gospel so we don't keep on talking about this thing. And then there are issues of conscience. Now, these are issues like whether or not Jesus will establish a literal thousand-year reign or not, and if so, whether or not he will rapture the church or not. And some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's fine. Just know this, Jesus is coming back. But we have three issues there, issues of the church, issues of, issues of Christ, issues of the church, and issues of the conscience. See, we can happily live in unity here at Trinity and disagree on issues like issues of conscience, unless you treat it as a first-tier issue, right? You know what I'm talking about? But here's the question. How serious of an issue is Peter speaking of here? Well, he says this is an issue of Christ. Now, how do I know? Did you catch that he repeats this word destruction twice? Th- that word for destruction is actually a word that speaks of 
the eschatological judgment, that last day judgment that is coming when Jesus returns to judge the nations, to judge the living and the dead for their lives. It's a day where those who are unrepentant sinners face the eternal wrath of God. And the doctrinal error here, he says, is a first tier issue. And notice how he describes it. He says they even are denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now that word for master that they are denying, it's a unique word that often it speaks of God's authority over the lives of his people. But interestingly, here and in Jude 4, this term master is applied to Jesus as the master who bought or redeemed them with his blood. So just as God redeemed Israel out of physical slavery to Egypt, Jesus has redeemed his church out of spiritual slavery to sin, death, and the, and the devil. Now catch this. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, that means that you are his. Did you catch that? If you believe that, that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you've turned from living for your sin to living for Christ, that means you are Christ's. We are slaves of Christ. That's what Peter and Paul and others say. We live for Christ's will above our own and our ethical lives. In other words, if we are Christ, that means that our will is to do his will above our will. Now, there is a popular free grace theology, especially in the Phoenix area, and it claims that we can have Jesus as a Savior, but not necessarily need him as a Lord. Now, Peter would say, I think the porch lights are on, but nobody's home. Like, that makes no sense to me. See, if Jesus is your Savior and Redeemer, Peter would say, he is the Lord of your ethical life. The decisions you make, the way that you live. And if you've been justified in Christ, then he is progressively sanctifying you, making you more in the image of Christ day by day. We believe that Jesus came to deliver us from sin and sinful desires. And that his will for our lives, catch this, it is better than our own desires. Are you hearing me? Jesus' desire for you is better than your desire for yourself. And when you follow Christ, you are saying, Jesus, I trust you over every earthly authority, including me, including my wants. See, Jesus' will edits our desires, not the other way around. You know, you've all heard probably many times someone say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to leave my husband because Jesus wants me to what? Be happy. I'm going to... I'm going to leave my family because Jesus wants me to be happy. I think it's okay if I, I took a little extra money at work because Jesus wants me to be happy and, and we have grace and all. But hear this, the gospel calls us to trust our lives with Jesus as both our Savior and our Lord. There's not a plan B. False teachers of Peter, Peter's day, they edited the voice of Jesus. That's what Peter's really concerned about. They have changed Jesus' words. They've changed the words of the apostles. They've changed the words of his prophets so that it was indistinguishable, this new version, from their own sinful desires. They made a God out that looked like them. And that God can't save you. See, they taught that Jesus was not coming back so they could live how they wanted. And Peter calls this damnable heresy. Now, you might read this and say, 
You know, if these false teachers came from among the members of the local churches and they faced God's wrath, did they, did they lose their salvation? Is that what Peter's talking about here? And if so, how can we put this together with what Paul says in Romans 8, that there is nothing in heaven and earth, things seen or unseen, that can separate us from the love of God? Well, I, I understand Peter here to use phenomenological language. It's a term that I found in, in Schreiner's commentary. And he, he uses it there to describe false teachers who made a public profession of faith and even did Christian things that other Christians did and looked Christian until over time they revealed themselves as not truly being saved, not truly believing the fundamentals of the faith. It reminds me a lot of 1 John 2.19 where John speaks of those who went out from us, and he explains, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, here's the irony to this text. They deny the return of Jesus to judge the living and the dead, and yet Jesus is coming for them. It doesn't cause him to hesitate or pause, even though they think that he is slumbering and taking his time. They're not ready for the return of Jesus because they're not believing in and teaching the return of Jesus. But notice third, many follow their way and cause the way to be blasphemed. See this in verse two. Take note. False teaching will not only prove to be destructive on the last day. We find here that false teaching is destroying things in the present day context. That's what Peter wants us to see. It's going to lead to ungodly lives of those who follow them and a blaspheming of the way of truth from the outside. Notice he says, and many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, this word for follow, it's an interesting word. It speaks of walking on a path or a route and he is describing the way these False teachers are teaching in a couple of ways. First, he says they're popular. Many will follow them. In other words, you might think that, oh, well, like, you know, hey, this book is on the front sort of display of a Christian bookstore, so it must be okay. We don't have Christian bookstores anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. Because it's popular. Popular doesn't mean true. And the immediate result, notice, is sensuality, which Galatians 5, it calls that a work of the flesh, not a fruit of the spirit. And, and the word here for sensuality, it speaks of a kind of self-abandonment. You are casting off self-restraint. You don't have self-control, and specifically within the context of sexual ethics. So in fact, you'll notice that because of their self-abandoned sexual sin, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What does it mean for the way of truth to be blasphemed? I think Romans 2.24 is here. That's where Paul is speaking to Jews in Rome, and he says, because of your ungodly lives, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. See, faith in Jesus means a new way of life, a way that testifies to the truth of what you believe in, the truth of the power of the gospel to transform sinners. In fact, in John 14, 6, you'll you remember that Jesus came and he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only path 
I'm the only road that leads to life. Every other path, and there are many, and they are wide, leads to destruction. And by the time we get to Acts, the way had become a kind of shorthand for the Christian way of life. Now, this phrase gets picked up uh, in the popular Disney show, The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen that, but you got The Mandalorian who wears this helmet and this sort of cool iron or some kind of metal suit. And uh, he constantly says, this is the way. And by this is the way, he means this is the creed of the Mandalorian. This is what we believe in how we live. And uh, I'm not sure all that that means. Uh, at least part of it is that you don't take off your helmet or let anybody take off your helmet and see your face. But back to 2 Peter 2.2. Here in context, Peter says the way of truth for Christians means that Christians should live out their sexual lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the way. Now, apparently, one of the first things that Paul taught the new church plan in Thessalonica, we've been going through Thessalonians on Wednesday night, was that faith in Jesus means a new way of life when it comes to sexual ethics. Did you catch that? New church plan, he's there for a very short time. One of the first applications of the gospel is, catch this, the world around you, the religions around you, so you can live sexually however you want. Some of them even, like, give benefits for it. I'm telling you, Christians live differently. And in his letter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, he says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust as the Gentiles do who do not know God. Paul says uh, this is a matter of first importance, self-control. Now, if you've got sons, and Mia's too young for me to figure this out yet, but I'm guessing this is true of her, daughters, one of the, the primary lessons that we're constantly talking about is the issue of self-control. Self-control is one of the most important things. Young kids, listen to me. Self-control, one of the most important things that you can learn to live a life that is prosperous, that is good and happy. You know, we live in a world that is going to vie for our attention. It's going to try to get us to do things that we ought not to do. And we are constantly going to be challenged to have to practice self-control. You know, your parents are going to tell you not to sneak in and eat dessert. And what's the one thing that you decide all of a sudden is the most important thing in the world? To try that dessert that your parents must not want you to have because it must be straight from heaven. And yet we need to obey the voice of our parents because God says so. We need self-control. We need self-control in the way that we use our money. Or, or we're going to end up broke. We need to be, have self-control with our work habits or we're going to end up broke. We, we need to have self-control in our relationships with others or we're going to either make a, a wreck of our relationships or we're going to end up alone. We need self-control. Self-control in all things. Self-control sexually. Now Augustine held... An unhealthy ascetic view of sex that saw all sex as kind of a necessary evil for procreating. But we don't find that we need self-control because God has hidden what is best from us. That's not good theology. You know, we need self-control because God wants us to focus on the, in, the things which are most profitable and good. The things that he has made us for. We are not those who determine what we've been made for. We have a God who made us, who tells us what we have been made for. 
See, the Bible begins with the joyful marriage of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. We do not find Adam looking at Eve and saying, huh, I think I could have done better. No, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he presents sex as a gift for the context of one man and one woman until death do them part. The Bible begins with that model of what it looks like to understand and enjoy sexual relationship. See, sin means that we use God's good gifts in wrong ways and even allow God's gifts to control us. Here's the irony. When we sin, we still are having to bootleg what God has created. And see, we see this in Genesis 4 where Lamech, as soon as Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, by Genesis 4, has already taken on multiple wives. And even Abraham, who is called out of Ur, is uh, trying to help God keep his covenant and promise with him when he tries to fill the earth apart from his wife, Sarah. And then in Genesis 19, we find that men are looking to take advantage of angels whom they think are men in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what's beautiful is we have these glimpses of a promise of a new creation throughout even the Old Testament, like the Song of Solomon. This book that is reveling in the relationship between a husband and his new bride. It's a picture of a new creation and, and the kind of way that, that God has created relationship between a man and a woman to look. It is something that they are delighting in and enjoying and singing about and others are singing about it and they're saying, this is what shalom in the home looks like. When, God's, when peace with God invades our very bedrooms, God has done something amazing and good. And in Ephesians 5, it shows that God actually created marriage as a picture of Christ's love for the church. So don't miss this. Christianity says that God created us for a purpose, and sex is part of his good design. It's not something that we evolved into or invented ourselves. This is not something that we all of a sudden found out was amazing and decided to explore it because, like, God didn't know. See, any deviation from one, marry, one man married to one woman until death do them part is sin. And only holiness can lead to true happiness. See, sex is not for unmarried people. It's not for people of the same sex or for one man and multiple women or vice versa. It's not to, not to be watched by others on a screen or, or, or to be taken and involved with, with animals or any other deviation from the norm. That's the Bible. But don't miss this. We live in a culture that says your sexual identity is something that you choose or create for yourself, and it's part of who you are. In fact, in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, uh, I know I've quoted that book a lot. I will continue to do that probably for many years. But he shows there how our culture has wholesale bought into the idea that the church and the family are actually oppressive structures. Are you hearing me? That's the doctrine of the world. That they prevent you and your children from creating your true self sexually. You hear that? God, he's an authority, he's oppressive. Your, your parents, they're an authority, they're oppressive. Uh, let me just say this. My wife works in foster care homes that's not freedom. It's not freedom not to have parents who love their children and care for their children. That's brokenness. That's a world that's not working. And that's the, the doctrine of the age that we live in. In fact, guys, guys of the past like Wilhelm Reich led us into this philosophical revolution 
In fact, he argued in his book, Sexual Revolution, that we need to teach children about sexual freedom at a young age. We need to teach them about what, what gender options they have, uh, about sexuality. This is sort of the fruit of his teaching, so that they are not indoctrinated by churches and families. We just need to be aware that this age is teaching us something about the nature of what meaningful relationship looks like, and it is breaking down the good things that God has created. But don't miss this. The world tells you to live for today because there's no promise of tomorrow. But only the Bible promises life after death. The philosophy that has uh, influenced everything from songs by Ariane Grande to uh, the, the, the Supreme Court justices, like it does not have a vision of Jesus coming back and giving an answer. But the church does. And that means that every day needs to be lived in light of the theological reality of the return of Jesus Christ. We need to think rightly about his return or we will drift into believing we can live how we want. So false beliefs we need to avoid, thinking about Jesus coming back. That Jesus grades on a curve. See, Jesus brings perfect justice. He doesn't grade on a curve. Which means that the return of Christ should in one sense drive us to despair that we have no hope in and of ourselves, but then delight us in that we have Jesus Christ as our perfect mediator who has saved us. It, it drives us to the reality that we are dependent on Christ yesterday, today, and forever. Our lives today, it, they tell us something about how we view the last day. What about this? Second, that Jesus wants me to be happy more than he wants me to be holy. Holiness is the only way to ho happiness today and on the last day, according to Jesus. If you are hearing messages that say that I can have more happiness or greater happiness apart from Christ or in disobedience to Christ, then you need to check the mail and who it's from. It's not from God. And, and I would say this too. If those messages are coming from your own outbox, you need to check them. Third, God made me this way. Well, that denies the doctrine of sin. That, that denies our, our neediness to be sanctified, to be changed, that we're not always, already what we ought to be. We are not yet what we shall be and shall not be that until we see Christ face to face. Or what about this? I have plenty of time to change my life. See, that denies Jesus' promise to arrive when you are least suspecting, suddenly, swiftly. Are you ready? I can't tell you how many people I have I've spent time with and I've seen who, who seemed like they were in a good trajectory and unsuspectingly, teenagers walking across the street hit by cars. And, and all of us just thinking, I wish I would have told them more of Christ and called them to Christ. Don't be that person. Pursue Christ today if you don't know Christ. Or what about this? Jesus is trying to keep me from being happy. It's like Jesus has given me a straitjacket with all of these expectations for how I should live my life that are constantly rubbing against my desires. But Jesus is the only one who came to give and not take. Hear me. Jesus is the only one who has truly and fully come only to give to you, not needing anything from you, never taking anything from you. He is the only one like that. 
All of us have a mixture of sinful motives. He came purely and wholeheartedly to save and redeem you, to give you an inheritance that is unfading, to give you a future where there was no hope. There is none like Jesus. He is the last person in the world that we should ever doubt. But notice the false teachers are different than Jesus because fourth, these false teachers have money on the mind today and face destruction on the last day. See, these false teachers are self-interested. They are self-seeking in verse 3. Now look there with me again. It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Greed drives them. A desire for money is, is highlighted. Now, when I think about the cares of the world that Jesus warns will take that word that seems to be firmly rooted away. I think that money and sex are two of the primary concerns of this world. That true prophets are inspired by God to speak God's word regardless the cost. True teachers seek to expose that God has said rather than using God to prop up their own agenda. But, but catch this, they don't just want money, they want to take your money. Do, do you see it? It's not just that they want to be rich, they want to exploit you. They aren't looking simply to have more, but to have yours. And you'll remember that Jesus taught that it's more blessed to give than receive, but these false teachers teach that it's more blessed to receive than give. Now Peter depicts these false teachers in a way that resembles the bad shepherds of Israel who beat and eat sheep for personal gain rather than protecting and feeding them. Now their eyes, these false teachers, they are on the treasures of this world rather than the treasures that have been laid up into heaven. So catch this. I'm guessing they claim that things have been bumping along as usual since the beginning of time. We find this later in 2 Peter. Seems like everything's just been kind of running sort of on automation, cyclically. It's just going to keep on going and going. And Jesus must have fallen asleep because he has not returned yet. The apostles taught Jesus would return on the last day to judge all of humanity for how they lived, including their sexual lives. And maybe they grew weary in their well-doing. Maybe it was a, a pagan culture around them that mocked their sexual ethics of Christianity and, and caused them to, to want to shift slowly. Maybe their own sinful appetites exhausted them. Maybe they discovered that sex sells to the masses. We don't know why, but they shifted in what they believed and what they taught. But be sure of this. They denied the gospel that centers on God sending his eternal son to deliver humanity from bondage to both sin and sinful desire. Death and eternal destruction. He came to save them from this by taking on human flesh and being tempted in every single way. Jesus knows the temptations of humanity yet without sin so that he might become an acceptable sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. So that he might declare in his raising from the dead that all who repent and believe in Jesus as king will be delivered. They will be delivered from their sins now and forever. They will be changed from sexual rebels destined for destruction into those who receive the sonship of God by adoption. See, Jesus did not come to take your money, didn't come to take your stuff, didn't come to take your joy. 
He came to give you freedom from the tyranny of sins like lust and sexual sin that only come to kill and, to stu- and steal and destroy. Jesus came to give life and life more abundantly. That's the truth of the gospel. Jesus wants better for us than we want for ourselves. If you're here this morning and you're non-Christian, you might think, man, I just knew I was going to get this kind of sermon. But I want you to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. You might be thinking that a Christian is somebody who doesn't struggle with sexual sin or who doesn't struggle as much as you do. But there's a a quote by C.S. Lewis who was definitely an error in some theological ways, but he was a great writer and he addressed people who claimed to be good people, saying this. There's people who say that good people don't know what temptation really means like we do. He responds to him like this. No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. You find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, Jesus understands your desires better than you do. And maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself, I can't come to Jesus because I have desires that I cannot defeat. And that's true. But here's the good news. Greater is he that is in those who put their faith in Jesus than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ can transform you. He will transform you. He gives your Holy Spirit promising that you will be changed forever. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be without the community of the local church. It's not going to be without some scars. It isn't going to be perfect. It's going to be clunky. But God will change you, and your future will be incredibly bright in Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, don't waste time Diddling around with sins that don't give you hope, put your faith in Jesus. But catch this. If you are part of the people of God this morning, I want to leave you with this. This call to trust that you are a part of this group who declare this. And if you are not a Christian and want to put your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that this is the group that you'll be joining. We're going to be part of those who trust that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone. Not because of works that we've done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we are committed daily to trusting God's word as the highest authority. Trusting his voice against my own desires that are sinful. Taking God's side against sin, seeking to kill every hint every day. Understanding that sanctification is progressive and we all have a long way to go. Knowing that our future is incredibly bright. The promises that have been given us in Christ, they are breathtaking, they are unimaginable, they are sure. And that Jesus Christ is coming back soon to judge the living and the dead. And we are ready because of Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that there are so many of us this morning who, even as we think about sexual sins, we're reminded of sexual sins of the past. There are many here, I'm sure, who 
are reminded of failures. Perhaps there are those who are fighting desires even today. Father, we pray that you would encourage us, encourage us through the reality that Jesus is coming back, that he really has given us all that we need to live a godly life, that we really can have victory over sin, that our future really does warrant anything that we sacrifice up until Jesus comes back. Lord, help us to be a people who are holy and happy for the glory of your name. And it's your great name that we do pray. Amen.